The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. For forty days the Lord kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than fifteen cubits. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and the entire human race. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Human beings and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. By the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty-seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Let's pray for Robin. Lord, thank you for Robin and his desire to hear from you. And Lord, we pray that as he preaches this morning, Lord, that you would allow his words to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, that you would speak to us that there would be something fresh for each one of us today. Lord, let your blessing fall upon each one of us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you tried switching off your computer and switching it back on again? That often fixes a problem. How often has each one of us heard that advice? Some of us have given that advice more often than we can count. 
Nothing seems to be working right. None of the apps are working properly. The computer is really running slowly. And often the best solution is just to switch the whole thing down, let it reset, and start it up again. And most of the time, that fixes the problem. Well, this morning we're going to be talking about a reset on a massive scale. We're starting a new series called The Promises of God. And over the next five weeks, we'll be looking at the topic of covenant. And especially the main covenants that God makes in the Old Testament and how they point to and are fulfilled in Jesus. So before we go any further, it might help if we first define what we mean by covenant. Well, one way that covenant is used in the, the Bible is simply as a solemn agreement between two parties. In Genesis 31:44, Laban says to Jacob, Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I, and let it serve as a witness between us. And Jacob and Laban set up a pile of stones, and then they both make, it, make this oath. I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, and you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. Now, not every agreement is a covenant. Come, let us have coffee together at um, 10 tomorrow is not a covenant. Because for something to be a covenant, something really important needs to be at stake. Well, come to think of it, for some people I know, coffee might almost fit into that category. In many cases, there's also some kind of risk of harm. So Laban and Jacob uh, promise not to pass a memorial stone in order to harm one another. But covenants aren't just made between enemies like Jacob and Laban. In 1 Samuel 18.3, Jonathan and David make a covenant because they love each other. But there's still kind of a risk of harm involved because Jonathan saves David from the harm that Saul intends towards him. And after Jonathan is dead, David makes it his business to protect Jonathan's descendants. At its core then, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties. However, there is a subset, if you like, of covenants, which are essentially one-sided. And instead of starting with something like, come, let us make a covenant, they begin with something more like, I now make my covenant with you, which is what God says to Noah in Genesis 9.9. And this kind of covenant is made between someone who is very powerful and someone who is much weaker. So they're not equals. And it's actually the form that treaties took in the ancient Near East, in the time of the Old Testament. And there were lots of treaties in those days because the political world was quite different. Um, when the Bible talks about Israel or Syria or Edom, we naturally tend to think of them as if they would be modern nation-states like France or Germany or the US. But modern nation-states only date back to 1648 in the Peace of Westphalia. Before that, most of the world was made up of little kingdoms inside of big empires. So you have to have a system to manage that. And in the time of the Old Testament, what happened was that the emperor, or the suzerain as they called them, would establish a covenant with each, a treaty with each of the vassal kingdoms under him. 
And it wasn't like modern treaties today, you know, like trade trade treaties or stuff like that, where people sit down at a table for like, you can take years to negotiate a treaty between two countries. And everybody has a say in it and there's give and take between both parties. Uh, that's not the way it worked. The emperor would basically come to the vassal king and say something like, this is my covenant with you. Sign on the dotted line. And that's the kind of covenant that's been enacted between God that, that we see, we always see being, being enacted between God and his people. Specifically in this series, we'll be looking at the covenants that God makes with Noah, with Abraham, with the nation of Israel through Moses, and with David. And in the final week, we'll be looking at how Jesus came to establish a new covenant that had already been prophesied in the Old Testament. Today we're talking about Noah. But before we dive into the text, I'd just like to talk quickly about where Noah comes in the Bible. Because basically the Bible is a story in four parts. So you have creation, and then the fall, and then redemption, and then new creation. We all know where creation is, that's Genesis 1 and 2. And most of us tend to think of the fall as Genesis 3, but actually that's just the beginning of the fall. Everything from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 is about the fall. The redemption part of the story doesn't actually start until Genesis 12 and God's call to Abram. And then the bulk of the Bible is about uh, God's work of redemption, and then he talks about, it talks about the new creation in the book of Revelation. So you've got creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. And scholars talk about the four sin stories of the fall. So Genesis 3.11. There's the first sin, the first murder, the spread of violence, that's the flood story, and the growth of pride, that's Babel. So the whole trajectory of Genesis 3 to 11 is that things are just going from bad to worse. But in the middle of it, there's, in the middle of all this negativity, there's one ray of hope. And that's the story of Noah. Now one thing I'm not going to do in this message is talk about um, geology and the question of whether the flood was over the whole world or whether it was a localized flood in Mesopotamia the so-called deluge debate. I'm not going to do that because I don't think that's what the question, that's the question that Genesis 6 through 9 sets out to answer. One of the important things about studying Scripture, and more, even more importantly about preaching Scripture, is that you allow the text to decide what the questions are that we should ask, rather than our own curiosity. So if you're curious about whether the flood was local or worldwide, then maybe we can have a conversation about that on Wednesday evening. Meanwhile, we need to ask what the writer's main point was when he wrote the story about Noah. It certainly wasn't to tell his readers that there was a flood. Everyone knew there was a flood. All the surrounding cultures have flood stories. So everyone knew that at some point back in history, there had been a huge flood, and people still talked about it. In fact, the Sumerian king the Sumeria is the, the Sumerians lived in the southern end of Mesopotamia. Uh, the Sumerian king list divides their kings into pre-flood kings and post-flood kings. In one of the other flood stories, 
the gods get angry because humans are making so much noise, so they decide to get rid of them all by causing a flood. But one of the gods leaks the plan to one man, and he builds a big boat, and he and his family and possessions and livestock survive the flood. Now, the Bible's flood story is different in significant ways. Not so much when it comes to the actual events of the flood, but in what it says about those events. <coughs> Excuse me. So I want to suggest to you that the Bible, in general, actually, is less concerned with events than it is with the interpretation of events. For example, an itinerant teacher is executed by the Roman Empire as a threat to national security. That's how Good Friday would have been reported in the day's report for a Roman soldier. But we see that event as a turning point of history and the ultimate sacrifice that restores us to fellowship with God. Same event, different interpretations. I think that's what's happening with Noah. What's important is how the writer interprets what happened in the flood. And I want to suggest that the story of Noah is about three things. The judgment of God, the grace of God, and the promise of God. So like I said, one version of the story uh, from, of this story from Mesopotamia has the gods, the gods getting bothered by humanity because of making so much noise that the gods can't get any sleep. Honestly, that's what the story says. What does the Bible say? Genesis 6, 5-7 The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So why does the writer say God brought the flood? Because of wickedness and evil. In fact, so much wickedness and evil that three times God says he's sorry or grieved or regrets that he made mankind. Verse 6. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Verse 7, I am sorry that I have made them. Those are pretty serious words. How did it come to this? Well, in Genesis 3, we have the first sin, disobedience. Genesis 4 is the first murder where Cain kills Abel. But it doesn't stop there. By the end of chapter 4, violence is spiraling out of control. Genesis 4.23, Lamech said, said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Genesis 5 is basically a genealogy. And then we get to Genesis 6. And wickedness and violence is corrupting all the earth, or all the land, depending on your viewpoint. It's the same word in Hebrew. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Genesis is very clear about God's reason for the flood. Judgment on sin and wickedness. To put an end to the cycle of violence and corruption that filled the earth. It's a reset 
on a huge scale. Everything is going wrong. System is getting more and more messed up. It's time to shut everything down. It's time to hit the reset button. So it always strikes me as a little strange that we make um, children's storybooks about the story of Noah and the flood. We make it a children's story. It's a horror story. At least hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people died overnight. That's not a pretty story. It's at least as bad as the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004. In the space of a, th- of a few hours, 228,000 people died horrible deaths. And by making a children's story, we run the risk of diluting just how strongly God is set against wickedness, evil, and violence, because it corrupts his good world. And the flood only makes sense if you first grapple with what the Bible says about its reason to judge wickedness and evil. So judgment is where the story begins, but it isn't where it ends. In fact, judgment is never where any story in the Bible ends. Because the flood sets the paradigm for every judgment of God, from the plagues of Egypt through the fall of Jerusalem to the final judgment of Revelation. There's always a remnant that is saved. Now, this next bit might get a bit technical, but it's important. Because um, different cultures use different ways to identify the focus of a piece of writing. Most of us, many of us at least, um, learned in school that you have to put what you're writing about at the beginning of your essay or whatever. We call it the thesis statement, right? Um, the newspaper world, they call it the lead. Well, that's not the way that Hebrews writers in general, um, structured their writing. One of the most popular ways that Hebrew writers use to draw attention to the main point of a poem or a story or even a book is something called chiasm. It's a way of organizing a passage symmetrically so that the main point isn't at the beginning and it's not at the end, it's slap bang in the middle. And there's a simple chiasm in Genesis 9-6 which says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Shed, blood, man, man, blood, shed. So this is symmetrical. And the point of the text is to say when it's appropriate for someone to take another person's life. And it's appropriate when that person is themselves a murderer. And it turns out that the whole of the flood story is one big chiasm. And it's not based around words, it's based around numbers. Chapter 7, verse 4, seven days of waiting for the flood. 7.10, another seven days of waiting for the flood. 7.17, 40 days of flood. 7.24, 150 days of water triumphing over the world. 8.3, 150 days of water waning. 40 days wait in 8.6, seven days wait in 8.10, and another seven days wait in 8.12. That, my friend, my friends, is not a coincidence. That's not a coincidence. The writer has gone to a lot of trouble to draw the attention of his, leader, of his readers to whatever is in the middle of the story. It might not be obvious to us because we don't organize our writing that way, but it would have been very obvious, stood right out to the original readers of the story. So the question is, what's in the middle of the story? 
Genesis 8.1 But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God sent a wind, made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. This is the bright spot of hope in the middle of all the darkness of Genesis 3 through 11. But God remembered Noah. This is the point of the story. But God remembered Noah. In the middle of the judgment of the whole human race, God remembered Noah. And when the Old Testament says God remembered, it usually means that he acted graciously towards someone. Genesis 19.29, God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot. Genesis 30.22, God remembered Rachel and opened her womb. Exodus 2.24, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and set about rescuing the Israelites from Egypt. And in Genesis 8.1, God remembered Noah and set about drying up the land. Not because of anything Noah had done, mind you. We know that from a verse that I skipped over at the beginning in Genesis 6.8. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, to English speakers, it might sound like, you know, he'd done something to find favor. But uh, the word translated favor is translated more often in the Bible as grace, which means unearned favor. So the picture we have at the end of chapter 7 is, and the waters prevailed on the earth. Nothing but water, as far as I can see. Which is basically the same view as in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. God has, sit, has hit the reset button. Except not totally, because he graciously saves one family for a reboot of creation. Like I said, the flood is a paradigm for every judgment of God in Scripture. And judgment is never the last word. There's always a remnant that's saved. And it also sets a paradigm for our own salvation. As people who deserve the judgment of God, we don't run into a boat to be saved. We run into Jesus to be saved. In Ephesians, again and again and again, Paul says, it is in Christ that we are saved. In much the same way that Noah and his family ran into the, fled into the ark to be saved, we flee the judgment of God into Jesus to be saved. So we started with the judgment of God on wickedness and, and evil. The beginning of the story, there's wickedness, evil, corruption, violence, and from there it's all downhill until the flood destroys everything. Except it doesn't destroy everything. The very bottom of the story, when almost everything has been returned pre-creation chaos, in Genesis 8.1, we see the grace of God when he remembers Noah. Then things start to get better, and eventually Noah is back standing on dry land. And the reset has taken place. Noah and his family are given a repeat of the commandment to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. And then we come to the promise of God. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. 
I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God's promise is he'll never do that again. He will never destroy everything by a flood. And it's unique in Scripture in it's not just a, a covenant a promise to people. It's a covenant with all of creation. It's a promise to all of creation. It explicitly says it is for every beast of the earth. This is God's promise that he will continue to do what Hebrews 1 describes him as doing, upholding all of creation by his word of power. In chapter 8, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, Never will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. In other words, despite the fact that God knows that humanity will continue to rebel against him, he won't punish all of creation for the sins of just one part of creation. Until the end, when John tells us in Revelation there will be a judgment of fire, not water, until then, God will not destroy creation because of us. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that he'll stop us from destroying creation. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, He promises that he won't destroy creation, but not necessarily he'll stop us from destroying it. But that's a whole other discussion. So because this covenant is with all of creation, it's, it's fitting that the mark of the covenant is something that is visible to all of creation. 9.12 And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature is with you for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God says, I have set my bow in the cloud. And we automatically think of a a rainbow and that's what he's talking about. He's talking about a rainbow. And we think of rainbows beautiful and we go and take photographs of them all the time. I don't think that's actually the point. It's not about how beautiful the rainbow is. God says, I have set my bow in the cloud. And to anybody reading this in the ancient world, the first thing that would have come to their mind would have been a bow. That, you know, a weapon of war, something that you use in battle, you know, you pull, that you shoot arrows with and kill people with. So what God's saying is, I've set my bow in the cloud. I have hung up my bow. I am making peace with creation. I won't go to war against it again. The first time the word covenant appears in the Bible is here in the story of the flood. And it refers to God's promise not to destroy all of creation. Even if we as human beings totally mess up and go horribly wrong as we have done, God will work with us and often against us to achieve his good goals for his creation. So the story of the flood tells us some really important things about God. It tells us about the judgment of God. It tells us that he is implacably opposed to evil, wickedness, violence, The writer tells us that that is why he sent the flood. God is just. 
It tells us about the grace of God. It gives us a paradigm for all of God's judgments on evil. That even in the darkest place, even when everything has been wiped out, he will still be gracious and save a remnant for himself. And it tells us about the promise of God, that he will work within creation to bring about his good goals, and he won't destroy it by water again. Those are all good reasons to praise him. So let's do that. Lord God, we thank you that you are just. That you judge evil, wickedness, violence. We don't always see that in our own lives, Lord. We don't always see that uh, around us. But we trust, Lord, that in the end you will set all things to right. And Lord, we want to be people like you who care about justice. Who are opposed to wickedness evil and violence. Help us, Lord, to be like you in that way. Lord, thank you that you're gracious, that even in the midst of judgment, you give people a way out. And Lord, thank you for sending Jesus, your Son, to be the way out for us. Thank you for the grace that you extended to us and to all of humanity in him, Lord. Lord, we thank you that we've been able to run into Jesus and be saved in him. And we pray for our friends and our family, our relations who have not yet run into Jesus. And we pray, Father, that they would find their way to your Son and be saved. And Lord, thank you for your promise that you will continue to work in creation. That we can trust you to to hold all of creation together until its final time. That you're reliable. The world around us is solid and real. And that you will sustain us as you sustain creation. And Lord, as we talk about Evil and violence and justice, Lord, we think about the events of recent days in the U.S. And Lord, we pray that, we pray for an end to violence and we pray, Lord, for an end to the injustice that triggered the violence. Lord, we pray for those who are speaking words of peace and restraint, Lord, that their, their, their voices would be heard and that this, these days of conflict and turmoil might, in the end, bring some good, Lord, as the injustice that, that, that triggers these, these, the riots and we've, we've finally be addressed. And Lord, we pray against those who, um, who foment violence and whose actions and whose words just pour fuel on the fire. Ask, Lord, that you would silence them and the voices of 
voices of peace and restraint would come to the fore. Lord Jesus, we pray for the um, the opening of churches around the country. Recognize that um, that isn't necessarily going to be as easy as we first thought. Uh, thank you for the evangelical churches of Turkey and their their wise guidance to churches in the country about how to how to reopen. Um, thank you for the the guidance of the church council as they have you know, deliberated upon this and given us some good ways forward. Help us, Lord, to be both um, wise and courageous at the same time and to know where the line between those things, those two things runs. Recognizing, Lord, that that line runs in different places for different people. Help us, Lord, also be gracious to those around us um, who may... Um, may feel more at ease or less at ease with the situation as it develops. But we do thank you that you've kept uh, people in our congregation safe from the coronavirus. Um, we thank you for that. We thank you that Antalya as a whole has been has gotten off lightly um, in terms of uh, numbers of, of deaths in, uh, as a result of this pandemic. And we pray that would stay the case, Lord as things open, that we wouldn't see a spike. Lord, we thank you for those who um, uh, we've been praying for in terms of uh, their health, that uh, Linda is doing well, as is Janita. And Lord, we continue to pray for uh, Catherine as she recovers from her surgery um, and uh, regains her strength. Pray that you would restore her, Lord. And Lord, we thank you for your grace to us in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.